Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. Superhero Month draws to a close with episode 22 and a late episode. I know and I'm sorry for those that may have been waiting like, I have to have this on Friday. All like two of you, I think, listen <laughs> on Friday. Uh, to be totally candid, I went back to work this week. Yes, uh, thrift stores are able to reopen and Value Village, where I work, has reopened. And it completely kicked my ass. Uh, We're on a a limited staff for the first little while, and I'm in a different position. If you've ever been to Value Village before, which I assume is probably most everybody, I used to sort all the houseware stuff in the back, so things like candlestick holders, anything that's not close, and books, really, I sort it. And now I'm on the donation doors. When you show up to donate, they come out with a big old smile in the green bin and take your stuff. That's what I've been doing. And after two months of sitting inside and chilling out, uh, being on my feet and having to run back and forth and stand outside in the sun all day, and that brutal friggin' heat wave we had, completely kicked my ass and demoralized me. So by the time I got home, I just did not have the energy to record until today. (laughs) So I apologize, and I will, now that I'm back to work, gotta get this new schedule sorted out. But I guess, you know, that's a pretty easy first world problem right there. I'm just too tired to record my podcast. Yeah, considering all the things going on in the world, I don't think that's quite a big deal. But, but yes, superhero month. So all month long, I've been talking about comic book superheroes, because that's by and large, where superheroes do most of their business. Over the years, there's been you know, every now and then there'll be an original superhero will pop up. But for the most part, unless they have kind of a comic book route, most big franchises, they don't kick off very well. You know, it's just a, a smattering of films here and there. So what I thought I would do is for this episode is pick a couple of movies, like I said last week, that have superheroes in them, but are in no way related to comic books. One of these did, I think, the cartoon version of it had probably some comic... Yes, they did have a Toxic Crusaders comic book and a Toxic Avenger comic book, because I have one. That's smart. Probably should know that well in advance, Bob. It helps when you can kind of interject it and not sound surprised by the own th- by the things you own. But when you're a hoarder, you tend to have lots of things. <laughs> so, uh, yes, as you probably guess, we're going to kick things off with the Toxic Avenger. So, synopsis. From 1984, directed by Michael Herz and Lloyd Kaufman... Tromaville has a monstrous new hero. The Toxic Avenger is born when Meat Mop Boy Melvin falls into a vat of toxic waste. Now evildoers have a lot to lose. So, I guess to talk about the Toxic Avenger, we have to talk about Troma films. Now, Troma is an institution in horror and exploitation. They've been around since 84. I believe Toxic Avenger was kind of their first big foray onto the scene. And... With trauma, you're, I find you're either kind of a fan of trauma or you're not. It's, they're films that fill a very specific niche. And when I was first getting into horror, they were kind of one of those legendary companies that you heard about. They have a cult following along the lines of something like Full Moon Pictures, these, this little movie-making factory that makes a very specific kind of film for a very specific kind of market. Now, if Full Moon kind of made a bit softer entertainment, you could say, with their movies, Troma's kind of at the... Troma's really at the far end of the spectrum compared to films like Dollman or Puppet Masters or Trancers or things like that. So, as I was learning about horror and learning about collecting and stuff, these were movies that kept coming up and coming up. And, like, you have to see these, you have to get a hold of them, especially The Toxic Avenger. It was... That series definitely had a huge fan base, so it was, these were on my radar very early. Once you get past things like, you know, your Nightmare on Elm Street, your Friday the 13th, your Halloweens, your Texas Chainsaw, like, the big franchises. When you start to come down into that next wave of more, I I hate to use the word obscure, because in horror circles, there's nothing obscure about trauma. But I guess to the average film fan, they might go, oh, I think a toxic event. Yeah, that kind of sounds familiar. So how I got into this, how I got a hold of this movie the first time in the copy that I still have and watched for this, I think I've told this story before. I think I told it when I was doing Stuart Gordon 
doing that, uh, doing Stuart Gordon. Yes, when I was doing Stuart Gordon. When I was doing my Stuart Gordon tribute. I got it at Charlotte Video. Uh, they were slowly, at that era, slowly starting to sell off their tapes. And my girlfriend at the time, Jen, she went in and talked to them and kind of put out a bit of a flirt and they sold her the tape for 10 bucks. Now, a few years later, when the first wave of DVDs would start to hit, it wasn't as hard to find. Obviously not. You can Troma has since gone on to release multiple versions of it. But I feel quite lucky with my version. I have the Lightning Video release, which is completely unrated. So all the blood, all the guts, all the gore is all there. And as I'm in this hardcore collecting phase, getting ready to go to film school, at my very first Festival of Fear that I worked at with Rue Morgue, Lloyd Kaufman was a guest. And Lloyd is kind of this legendary figure in horror. He is as much of a... As much of a pop figure himself as his films are, he plays very much a character of this kind of over-the-top, kooky, crazy guy that makes these wild and wacky films. And it was it was a trip. You know, I told him I was going to film school, and he was talking to me about it, and he was just kind of everything I wanted him to be at that point. You know, I was 19, I was super green, you know, I was buying DVDs from the trauma booth, and he signed them all. You know, I think he signed the Toxic Avenger 4, Toxie Loves Your Movies, and I'm like, oh, I was so overjoyed. And I had his book, Make Your Own Damn Movie, which is actually a really good book for, for young filmmakers. The second time I met Lloyd wasn't as great of an experience. I think a lot of people might have had this moment of meeting Lloyd can be fun. Don't bring women around him because he tends to get a little off topic. The second time I went to meet him to get my lightning video of Toxic Toxic signed, I was there with my girlfriend at the time. And man... (laughs) Lloyd could not have given, I could have been standing there naked smoking a cigar, you know, shitting my pants or shitting on the floor and Lloyd would not have noticed. And I don't think I'm the first person that's had that problem (laughs) dealing with Lloyd. But, you know, for all of his, his personal eccentricities, the, the guy is a legend and rightly so. He's made some, some films that are going to last as long as there's a horror genre, as long as people are talking about films and collecting films. And he was such an integral part of the 80s horror scene, especially the 80s New York horror scene. So for whatever problems I have, you know, it's, it really kind of all falls by the wayside. Now, the Toxic Avenger itself is this weird blend of horror and comedy and pure straight exploitation. It's a film that's not fucking around in any way, shape, or form. The opening five minutes of this movie tells you everything you need to know. It's a pseudo-environmental message completely glazed over with tits and ass and violence. You know, right in the opening credits, you know, when they're whizzing through the health club, the camera just keeps zooming in on tits and asses. You know, it's completely over the top. But saying trauma is over the top is kind of like saying Mel Gibson has a problem with minorities. Like, it's, we know this. We all know it. Anyone that goes into a trauma movie not expecting it to be over the top and being, oh my god, that's so scandalous. I cannot believe they did that. What the fuck are you doing? Like, why are you doing this? You should know better just from the title. You know, this isn't, you know, like Aaron Brockovich, you know, where she's going around getting, I'm going to get a petition together so you stop polluting the environment. No, Toxie's just going to fucking smash your skull in. Like, that's what we're doing here. The movie is built to be completely and delightfully tasteless. It's designed that way from the ground up. It's not... It's not one of those movies where the filmmakers were trying really hard and just desperately wanted to make a great movie and threw 
just exuberant ineptitude created something goofy and over the top accidentally. You know, films like I've referenced these before and I'll always keep referencing them, you know, Deadly Prey, Miami Connection, stuff like that. You know, those guys were trying, thought they were making a really serious film and created something beautiful. This film knows exactly what it is. It's designed to be completely exploitational. And it's a blueprint that Lloyd and Troma would stick with and continue to use for years to come, right up until this day. They make, with varying degrees of quality, the exact same movie over and over and over again. In terms of its I guess, yes, the content changes, the script changes, but in terms of wonderful, violent tastefulness or tastelessness, that's what Troma does. The blueprint was laid out with a Toxic Avenger. So many movies of the of the home video era, of the 42nd Street era, the drive-in era, the history of horror and exploitation would advertise themselves as being extreme. You know, we have the most tits, the most ass, the most blood, You, the most monsters. You will not believe what you're going to see when you pay your admission to come and see this film or you pick up the box and, oh my God, you're in the video store. This box is crazy. Look at all the gore and violence and big-titted women. I cannot believe it. By and large, beyond a, a slick trailer, a great cover of a VHS tape or a great poster... Most of those movies wouldn't deliver. They would either front load a lot of violence or nudity or sex right in the first 10 or 15 minutes. A lot of this was strategic because when they were selling to video stores, when the video store was deciding whether to buy a tape or not, they would pop it in and see how the first 15 or so minutes of the movie would play. Because you can get a pretty good idea of what the movie's going to be in the first 15 minutes. Troma kind of took a note out of Herschel Gordon Lewis's playbook that if you're going to do this, let's go all the way. Let's not pussyfoot around and just, you know, have a little, you know, a couple of little set pieces, a one or two centerpiece kind of gore gags, a sprinkling of, of cheeky nudity and playfulness like that. No, let's just go completely insane. You want blood, you got it. You want gore, you got it. You want nudity and sex, you have it. You have anything you could really want out of an exploitation movie is in the Toxic Avenger. So, like, just to give a bit of a breakdown here. So, Melvin, our mop boy, terrorized by the meatheads at his local gym because they're trying to hit all of these wonderful notes of the 80s. You know, nerds are big from Revenge of the Nerds. So we have Melvin. He's a big nerd. You know, gyms and fitness and, you know, what the hell? It's not calisthenics. I don't know. Where they go in in their little onesies and they jump around. Aerobics. Oh my God, I cannot believe I could not remember the word for aerobics. So he's terrorized by them. His stunt double goes out the window, lands in Nevada toxic waste because we have to have the environmental message. It's the 80s. We're being conscientious. Oh, and of course, the truck drivers driving the truck are literally covered in cocaine which, of course, they're covered in cocaine. And it's important to note that Melvin was also tricked into wearing a tutu and making out with the sheep before he went out the window. And the people that tricked him into the tutu and making out with the sheep and eventually drove him out the window in terror also get their kicks and relax by driving around and running over people, <laughs> turning it into a game. <laughs> you know, this this is the movie that we're dealing with. You know, beyond the superhero elements, this is our superhero's origin story. Right there. You know, every great superhero has some kind of an origin story. You know, Batman saw his parents murdered in front of him. So that drove him to be, you know, this, the Cape Crusader, this dark servant of justice. You know, Iron Man, from the movie version at least, trapped in the cave, builds the arc reactor, doesn't like what his legacy has become, decides to go out and fight for justice. Spider-Man, great power, great responsibility, on and on and on and on. Usually somewhat of a of a noble kind of beginning. There's nothing noble about Toxie's origin story. <laughs> He's a terrorized nerd who is in his transformation into Toxie, it looks horribly painful. 
you know, it's it's brutal. These there's wonderful '80s effects. You know, the air bladders going, very altered states, kind of a thing. So, Toxie is part of you could say in the, you know, the the family tree of superheroes, or he's part of what I guess I would call the accidental branch of heroes. You know, some sort of accident befell a person and turned them into something else. You know, the Hulk with the the gamma rays. Uh, Spider-Man being bitten by the spider. The Fantastic Four getting hit by the space radiation. I don't know. Galactic energy, whatever, from space. I'm sure there's a term for it in the comic book. You know, and then there's Toxie. You know, he fits right in to that, that group, you know. That would be an Avengers lineup that I think everyone would love to see. You know, maybe we can throw that into the multiverse of madness. That would be hilarious if they drop into Doctor Strange drops into Tromaville, New Jersey. So while Melvin, the character, is he's really annoying. Like I understand why everybody is is bothered by him. Obviously, they go to some very extreme lengths to show their bother because everyone in Tromaville is insane. In one way or the other. <laughs> but he, he is very annoying. But Toxie is actually strangely endearing. You know, even while he's ripping dudes' arms off and beating them with the wet ends and poking out the eyes of transvestites and deep-frying people's hands, it's I think it's the voice that they've overdubbed him with. It's this very smooth voice that doesn't really in any way fit Toxie. <laughs> But there's just something about it, and mo- you don't see much of his face. Most of he's shot from behind. I don't know if they weren't confident in the makeup. They didn't do- want to do a lot of close-ups. But it's there is something endearing about Toxie. You know, he's put through this. He was such a snivelly, whiny little, barely functional person. But as the Toxic Avenger, he's focused and together and he has goals and ambitions now like sure he's gross and he's still wearing his dirty tutu he never changes his clothes and he's you know a monster he's horribly scarred and mutilated but you you're on board with toxie you you want to see him succeed you want to see him lead a good life while he's out there fighting the good fight now with superheroes they're only really as good as their villains here, Kaufman and Co. are they're trying everything they can to make the bad guys as crass and as tasteless as possible. You know, you want Toxie to fucking kill these people, mutilate and destroy them. And because he, you know, his brand of justice is so over the top, you know, the bad guys themselves have to be over the top to match that. You know, the audience at no point can we say, well, they're not really that bad. You know, they have to just be the biggest human dumpster fires in the history of the world. You know, these guys are pointing guns at toddlers. That shot of the gun in the toddler's face is so insane. You know, they're trying to shoot cops in the dick. You know, they're attempting to rape blind women after shooting their seeing eye dog. Like, it's just, it's, they're horrifically over the top. So, and they're not even our main villains. These are just kind of the tertiary background guys. The main villains are standard exploitation fare. You know, evil mayors, crooked cops, one, the police chief who acts like a Nazi, and other corrupt officials of Tromaville, people that run the town. These characters, though, they really do kind of operate in the background of the movie. They pop up every now and then, almost just to kind of remind you that they're there and they're going to be there for an obvious showdown at the end. Most of the time, Toxie's just going around busting small-time crooks, people that are attacking cops or robbing taco stands. <laughs> Or getting revenge on the people that turned him into Toxie. You know, these are the guys that are driving around running people over. The scene where they run over the goofy kid who's riding his bike is something that is forever burned into my head from the first moment I saw it. Because they hit him and he's just lying in a bloody heap, but he's still alive, so he won't get full points. Bozo, that's the character's name. He won't get full points. So he runs over the kid's head and they show it in glorious, wonderful detail. 
Because of course you do. If you're going to make a movie like this, you have to go all the way. And it's low budge, you know, it's just a melon stuffed with shit. It's an effect that I would use in short films and school stuff that I went on to do. And I think there's a whole generation of young horror filmmakers that were inspired, at least in terms of, you know, kind of low budget effects, how to do this stuff from the Toxic Avenger and from Troma's early output. You know, I guess some kind of fun Snapple facts. It's an early role for Patrick Kilpatrick. Yes, that is the guy's name. He was in, uh, I think, Scanner Cop Five. He sh- he should be in. He's been in everything. He showed up in an episode of Deep Space Nine. Uh, oh, it's in season eight, season seven. Sorry, it's when uh, Siege of AR eight two two or something like that. I can't remember, but he's in that. the The big giant fat guy. That's Pat Ryan. He would play big, fat, greasy, fat guys in a few other exploitation classics. Most notably, he was in Street Trash, and he was also in Class of Newcomb High and Mannequin. Because, you know, obviously, if you're making a movie about a mannequin that comes to life so a guy can bang it, you have to have a big, giant, greasy, fat guy. Beyond the Toxic Avenger, which, to this day, is is Troma's best movie. It's, it's kind of one of those situations where it's like a really great band, where they've put out good music since their first album, but nothing really eclipsed that first record. And I think that's the case with Trauma. The the output has been uneven, I would say, at best. The sequels to The Toxic Avenger 2 and 3 are pretty weak. They really dialed back on the violence and the tastelessness and the sex and all that shit. And they become kind of a bit a watered-down version of the first one. Uh, although part four was, I think, a noted improvement. It was Troma went through a bit of, I guess you could say, a renaissance at during at the turn of the millennium with things like uh, well, Toxic Avenger Four, Citizen Toxie, and Terra Firmer. I Terra Firmer, I know, is a lot of love. I haven't watched it in a long time, but I wasn't super into it when I was younger and watched it. You know, films like Class of Newcomb High are still a lot of fun because it was done right after Toxic Avenger, shares a lot of the same cast, and it keeps that, they look the same, kind of like, you know, they have that kind of same spiritual feel to them. It's not a sequel in any way, but it maintains that pseudo-environmental message, you know, people mutating, like all the great, all the things that made Toxic Avenger great. Tromeo and Juliet actually probably comes close to being their most real film. And it's unfortunate because it's such a good movie, but it almost feels like the movie turned out too good. So they went back and kind of started to sabotage it. Anytime there was a really great emotional scene, they would layer in fart jokes and burps and stuff into the soundtrack to kind of dumb it back down a little bit, which I think is a bit of a shame. Poultrygeist, their most recent film, full-length film, is a musical, Night of the Chicken Dead, and that is a flat-out great movie. It's probably up there with Toxic Avenger as the best of Troma's output. The songs are great, the performances are funny, the effects are ridiculous. It's just a great all-around film. If you want to get into Toxic Avenger, skip the sequels, go right to the original. That's that's the money shot, pun intended, because I'm sure if they could have had big giant arc and ropes of jism all over this motherfucker, they would have. And there were giant uh, monster penises in part four, so I guess that kind of fits. So keeping the trauma connection, uh, we're going to move on to Orgasmo by Trey Parker from 1997. Naive young Mormon Joe Young is recruited to act in porn movies. Wow, that actually sounds like a synopsis for a porno. Really, well, like, technically, yes, that is what the movie's about, but it kind of undersells it just a bit. So, keeping with this trauma tie-in, long before South Park, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone were making movies before they were making the cartoon, obviously. And in film school they had started to make for their thesis project a movie about Alfred Packer, a, uh, the only person in the United States, in history of the United States, ever convicted of cannibalism. And after they got out of school, they continued to make this movie, and it became Cannibal the Musical. 
Absolutely excellent movie, by the way. Hilarious. But because it was so strange, so weird, it's a, a no-budget indie movie full of no no-name stars, nobody famous, no one noticeable. It's a musical. There's blood and gore and weirdness in it. Nobody would touch it with a 10-foot pole. They couldn't find any distributors. In comes Troma. Because on top of releasing and making their own films, Troma releases other people's films under their banner. And Matt and Trey have told this story where they went and met with Lloyd at a taco restaurant and ended up paying for lunch as they're meeting with the distributor. And the deal that they offered, or the deal that Lloyd offered them was no money up front, and, but he'll release the film. And as soon as the film gets into the black, then they would see some profits. I'm sure to this day, they probably haven't seen a dime, even though that film has probably made Troma more money than any other film they've ever released. So there's lots of little nods and stuff in this movie to Troma. When Joe's fiance is at the video store, there's on the shelves, you can see Toxic Avenger, Class of Newcomb High 1 and 3. There's Toxic Avenger posters around. Lloyd even has a cameo at the end. He's the urologist that's going to cut off the the porn director's uh, dick and balls. So Orgasmo is a movie that I think, like along with Cannibal the Musical, there's a little more awareness of it now, but it came out the exact same year as South Park. Both of them hit in 1997. And obviously, one of them was more successful than the other. And Orgasmo just kind of languished in obscurity for a lot of years. It had a limited video run, and it wasn't until years later that a DVD, a proper DVD release came out. It's such a delightful movie, and it's a shame that more people don't know about it. And I can understand... Like, obviously, the the title can put people off. The fact that they're going to be watching a movie about the porn industry might put people off. That, oh my god, what's the guys that do South Park going to do with porn? But of course, if Trey Parker is going to make a movie about the porn industry, he would do it with next to no female nudity. There's one, maybe two very brief shots of a boob or two, but literally blink and you miss it. But what he does focus on is lots of hairy asses. Because what would you see so much of, especially in in old porn and into the 90s, just so many ass shots of dudes. I never understood it. Just this hairy ass as far as the eye can see. It is, this movie does follow the, a very standard superhero template, comic book template. Even the opening credits are lampooning famous comic book covers and comic book images, but replacing the superheroes with Orgasmo and Joda Boy and complete with a wonderful song by DVDA, a band that would pop up again in Basketball. And this is more of a, you could say, kind of an Iron Man style origin story. It's accidental, but there's no mutant transformation or anything like that. You know, a character gets a hold of a piece of technology that allows them to fight crime. You know, whether it's Iron Man building the arc reactor and then building his suit, or whether, I'm sure there's countless other examples. As you can tell, I'm not a gigantic comic book person, even though I've been talking about comic book movies all month. You know, or something like Batman, where he builds the stuff that he needs to go out and fight crime. Things like that. And the film itself is a delight. It begins, it's the first kind of glimpse of this obsession with Mormons that Trey Parker has. It's growing up in Utah in that area you're going to have, or Colorado. You're going to have, you know, this connection with Mormons. And he's dealt with them on South Park, most famously with the Book of Mormon, his Broadway show. And it is a shame that Trey himself wasn't in more movies because he's always great. And considering the kind of comedy he does, especially the comedy that he's done on South Park, which can be so biting and so hard edge and so boundary pushing that his few on-screen roles 
he plays, he comes off so endearing and soft. Now, obviously here he's playing a Mormon, you know, a Joe is the, you know, he is the prototypical naive Mormon, you know, from the deserts of Utah, you know, he's now thrown into, you know, the, into Los Angeles and the Los Angeles porn world of everything, you know, it's just, it's the movie is a delight. There's not as much to say, as along with something with along the lines of Toxic Avenger, you know, because I also don't want to spoil too much because you you really want to come into this movie as cold as you can to see all of the weirdness. But the fact that he because, of course, if Trey Parker is going to make a superhero movie, he would give the superhero the power to give other people orgasms at a distance. And that's how he would stymie them and stop them from fighting crime or committing crimes. Like it's just, it's so ridiculous. It, it is. It's completely ridiculous. The plot itself, like, yes, obviously the plot of the movie is about a porno character named Orgasmo and then he becomes the real Orgasmo. But that could be a porn in and of itself, especially in the 90s. Like, nowadays, porn is so mainstream and no one even really cares about it anymore. But there was a time when, you know, porno movies were being made to have some semblance of a plot, you know, that didn't revolve around, you know, my stepmom's a slut, you know, though the pizza delivery guy is at the door, you know, like, most porn nowadays has no plot, it's just scenes. So it's, it's a delightful little glimpse into an older world of of the porn industry and you know for those of us that were there in the in the 90s early 2000s there's some famous porn faces you know ron jeremy's in it and you know he's also had been in he was in toxic avenger 4 actually and he'd done a few trauma movies you know i think you pay him and he'll show up in anything uh chasey lane jill valentine you know yes there was a time when people knew who porn stars were it's just it's such a such a softer world back then, such a, a less spitty world back then. I think some people will know what I mean by that. It's the movie is a delight. It's Joe is such a wonderful character, and the idea of a kung fu kicking Mormon, and there's a lot of carryover from the cast of Cannibal the Musical is here. The the Asian man who played a Native American in Cannibal the Musical, you not think we Indians, is here. But this time he's a gangster rapper loving sushi chef. And it's just, it's fucking hilarious. The movie is hilarious. It would have completely flown under my radar. I found out about it in high school. A buddy of mine in high school, Brendan Mertens, he had a movie collection that was just insane. And he had everything. He had mainstream stuff, horror stuff, weird, obscure exploitation stuff. And he had Cannibal the Musical and Orgasmo. And he's like, dude, you like South Park? Dude, you have to see it. Did you know he made movies before he did South Park? And if I can't necessarily say if you like South Park, you'll like Orgasmo. Because the humor, well, it is Trey and Matt and there's familiar faces in it. It's not the kind of movie, like, it doesn't directly translate. You know, something like Team America World Police, that is South Park-style humor. This is, you could say, a bit softer. It doesn't have the the rough edge, like the really hard biting edges that something like Team America does or something like South Park does. But it's a shame that he never revisited it and did more, you know, orgasmo adventures. Even just crossing the character over into South Park, you know, to see some kind of little cameo there. I don't know if he doesn't have the rights to it anymore or how it all turned out there, but it would have been funny. And I can't believe no one's cosplayed as it. I've gone to a lot of conventions, and maybe they just don't want to deal with the weirdness of someone walking around dressed as orgasmo going, you know. That maybe that'd be more of an adult film convention to have somebody dressed up as that character. But the movie is, as I've said, and we'll just endlessly repeat it because I am I am as I said at the start of the episode, I'm a little tired and fried. The movie is is wonderful. If you can track it down, I know there's been a DVD release. Uh, it was part of their early DVDs they were doing where they would famously do their drunken commentaries where they would just get progressively more drunk during the commentary tracks and just start losing it. 
and hearing every time you see Dean Bacar with the dick on his head, just hearing Trey completely melt down. And he's claimed that the only reason he made the movie was so that he could put a giant dildo on Dean Bacar's head, the guy that plays Chota Boy. Uh, he was also um, uh, Squeak Little Bitch Scolari in Basketball. Another excellent movie, by the way, too. They didn't write it. It's the Naked Gun guys, but I really like that movie. Just and it's mainly because of them, and you can tell that they're bringing material to it, and just their, just their natural rapport with each other. But check it out if you can find it. I'm. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere legit, but I'm sure you can. You know, drudge it up if you look hard enough. So, yeah, that brings Superhero Month. To a close. It's been fun talking about superhero movies. I've, you know, as I've said, I wasn't a comic book kid, so my superheroes have always been on the big screen. They've always been larger than life. So whether it's Blade or Batman or Toxie, it's it's always fun to revisit that because for me it's like sitting down, you know, the way the comic book kids sit down with, you know, their box of comics and follow the adventures of their favorite characters. It's always great to pop in a tape and and revisit these guys. So, on to Deep Space Nine. So, Season 2, Episode 3, The Siege, aired October 10th, 1993. As a circle-led Bajoran military attempts to occupy the station, a skeleton crew led by Sisko fight to reveal the circle's secret before they're forced to evacuate themselves. Meanwhile, Kira and Dax lead a mission to reveal the truth about the circle on Bajor. So, this is the is part three of the three-part opener of season two, which has been following this attempted coup on Bajor of the provisional government by this terrorist group, The Circle. And we've moved between very politically charged stuff, more, I guess you'd call it, it's not heavy action, it's not tech stuff, it's more political intrigue is what's been happening the last couple of episodes. This one is more action-oriented than what we've seen, which when you watch it or if you've seen it, I get how funny that sounds that it's that I'm calling it action-oriented given how kind of low-key the action plays out and also what would come later on Deep Space Nine as we got into the Dominion War with huge clashes of fleets of starships and ground battles and things like that. But during this era of Trek, this is what counted as action. Characters that we knew and loved involved in a perilous situation and they're sneaking around, having gunfights, you know, running away from the bad guys, catching the bad guys. This was great action at the time because we're invested with the characters. The stakes are very high for the second season of this show. You know, if if our heroes, if the crew of DS9 don't prevail, they're going to lose the station. Federation influence is going to be lost and control. Federation control over the wormhole is going to be lost. So there is a huge amount at stake here. It's not just the fate of Bajor, which they'd be destroyed. The Cardassians would rush right back in and retake the planet, and then they would be in charge of the wormhole. So for only the second season, they've really ramped up the stakes here. And it plays out wonderfully. Obviously, our guys win, you know, Dax and Kira, they do get through and they they do state their case to the provisional government and the the bad guys fall, but you still don't feel great about it. You know, it's not one of those riotous endings where it's like, yes, we fucking won, you know, take that, you terrorist cell guys, you don't get to destroy the government today. There's no real sense of joy to the victory. Like, we're happy, but just how close they came, Bajor came to losing everything, and just how much hate and vile nastiness is in their own people. You know, a people that were put through so much during the occupation, and then they can turn around and be capable of a lot of the exact same heinous acts that they spent years fighting against and that the how they could turn on the Federation so quickly, people that have done nothing but help 
and try to facilitate their rebuilding. And I think what really pisses me off is that Vedic Wynn doesn't get hers because, of course, the bitch is tied into all of this. And the second she smells that the you know smells smoke in the air that the wind is going to turn for them, she immediately throws the other guys under the bus just to save her own skin. And oh, that's she's a character that you love to hate because she plays it so well. And every single time she shows up, you just want to grab her by the neck and choke the life out of her. Which is exactly the point. You know, that's the sheer sign of a perfect character like that. When you're, it's a character you're supposed to hate and you absolutely hate her. Just the sight of her makes you go, oh, no, no. If there is a flaw in this, this, oh, these opening episodes, and they're incredibly strong, it's no flaw in the plot. It's actually a, f- a problem that the the Star Trek team, design team, had for years, especially in this era, the, the next generation era. So next gen, DS9 and Voyager. And the problem is they never really got a handle on the civilian clothes for the Federation, for Federation citizens. And here it's on full display because Cisco and the DS9 crew is waging this kind of guerrilla war, uh, hiding in the the access conduits and stuff around the station. They're not wearing their uniforms because they're technically not there as representatives of the Federation. So they have to be out of uniform. So they're in civilian clothes and the civilian clothes on Star Trek always looked brutal, brutal. Always the Federation clothes. It's this spangly, pseudo futuristic, always look like they were just wearing these kind of very loud pajamas, you know, like something you'd expect to see like John Waters or something wearing in a science fiction film. It it looks like sci fi clothing. It's depending on the character, sometimes they'd get it a little better. But it's one thing that always has kind of stood out like a bit of a sore thumb in this era of Trek. And it's it's a bummer because otherwise it's a near flawless three-parter. Like I said at the start of this, it's making a very firm commitment to what the show is about. It's doubling down on their, their themes, their goals, and their intentions for the show. And this was a absolutely perfect way to bring people into the second season because if you don't if you're not happy now you're probably not going to be happy with the show so it's best to kind of move on and then maybe come back to it later which is what we're doing right now isn't that joyous so for a book uh, my stephen king month has also come to a close along with my superhero month even though i still have one more to go that i haven't quite finished reading the outsider right now and i just can't seem to get into it I don't know if it's the way he's structuring his characters or the way he's doling out the plot. I just, I'm just, I've really been struggling with it. I've been reading it for too long, given how how short it is. But this week's book is not The Outsider. It is Just After Sunset, is I believe fifth short story collection from 2008. Now, other than one of these stories, The Cat from Hell, these are all post-2000 stories, so they're all new stories. It's not like these are a smattering of stories from across his entire career. And a lot of them were written in the wake of 9-11. And there's two stories here specifically that deal with 9-11. The Things They Left Behind and The New York Times at Special Bargain Rates. King has, by his detractors, and usually these detractors are people that don't sit down and read enough of his body of work to form a a cogent opinion, have accused him of just being a goremeister, he's just out to scare you, he's not concerned about character or plot or any of those things, and anyone that's read enough King knows that that's just bullshit. Like, it's such a, it's such a straw argument to level against him, and these two stories are such perfect examples because they're dealing with the people. King has always been character-focused. He's not a plotter. He doesn't plot anything in, in advance. He comes up with a scenario and then starts writing about people in that situation. So even if the stories themselves can get 
off topic or don't end well or get too weird or overwritten, the characters themselves are usually incredibly rich because that's always his focus. And with these stories, the 9-11 stories, they're wonderful because they're dealing with this, he captures this wonderful sense of loss. And that's what seems to be this prevailing feeling he was having in the wake of 9-11 is loss. And whether it's a loss of innocence, a loss of what the American ideal, what they were supposed to be. But here with these stories, he really boils it down to the loss of people and the the loss that those left behind felt, that horrid survivor's guilt in the wake of 9-11. And those stories are are quite special because they're not horror in any way, shape, or form. They're just about, there's some supernatural elements in them, but they're just about people trying to process this incredible loss that the entire country has gone through. The There's not really any bad stories in the bunch. There's ones that are better than others. Uh, I'd have to say the best story in the entire collection, for me anyway, is called N, and it's a very Lovecraftian story. It's about, it's the whole thing is set around a character talking to a shrink, but he has found some kind of this stone circle, and he has, you know, unwittingly becomes the caretaker of it. And if he doesn't take care of it, then the things beyond the veil will come tumbling into the world. And it's a wonderful story because he gets very arch and arcane about his descriptions of these things that are waiting beyond. And that's always fun whenever a writer tackles that kind of subject matter, that very classic horror idea, and does it really well. Uh, Graduation Afternoon, a very simple story uh, about this girl from the wrong side of the tracks dealing with being with her boyfriend at their fa- at his family's very spacious, you know, they're ultra rich. And then they kind of hear a boom and then see a mushroom cloud rising up over New York City. And then the story just ends. Oh, holy shit. And it ends with such a wonderfully gross story called A Very Tight Place. And it's about a guy who is locked inside a fortified porta potty by someone that wants to kill him and his dis and it's tipped over and his disgusting journey to have to get out of this baked hot gross toilet and anyone that's had to use porta potties especially in the heat and that have been sitting there it's just ugh, ugh, it's so gross but it's absolutely wonderful classic king storytelling it's just a character in a horrible situation And he just tightens the screws. This was a really good one. It was his short story collections can sometimes be, you know, they're like glaring stories that are like, ooh, that one wasn't as good as the others. But this is this one was really good. It was, I think, just as good as Everything's Eventual. Uh, I read that earlier in the month. And no, check it out just after sunset. Recommendations. Uh, stay on theme. Uh, Toxic Avenger Troma, check out Poltergeist. Troma has dumped a huge amount of their films for free to watch on YouTube. I think a bunch of them are on Tubi as well. Uh, Poltergeist, Night of the Chicken Dead, is a hoot. The songs are funny. The performances are really good for a Troma movie. The effects are funny. The environmental message is back and very very forward in this film and it's great and cannibal the musical it's if you're a trey parker and matt stone fan you kind of owe it to yourself to see cannibal the musical the songs are hilarious the gore is funny just the humor in the film itself is funny and the ambition they had to make this as their first movie is you could tell these guys were going to be insanely successful no matter what they went on to try and do But, you know, when this is your first movie, a period musical, yeah, you've got big old balls. Uh, For a book, because I read a short story collection this week, I thought I would move away from King, and I would recommend Fragile Things by Neil Gaiman, a collection of short stories, essays, collected snippets. It's just kind of gathering up all these little disparate things that he had written over the years and putting it together. Again, some stories better than others. 
the story of the seasons or the months, I'm sorry, gathering and talking to each other is stands out really specifically for me because it's classic Neil Gaiman, how he could anthropomorphize and personify the, the months of the year and give them all this very distinct character. And it's just, it, it's a great collection, especially if you're a Neil Gaiman fan. Check it out. That brings May to a close, and we are going into June. Now, we, obviously the COVID stuff's going on. I know there's a huge amount more going on in the United States, especially right now, that I'm not going to touch on. Obviously, I think it, I hope it goes without saying, but I am completely on side with the with Black Lives Matter, with the fact that this is a, another example of a hideous injustice, and I this horseshit all lives matter, all lives won't matter until Black Lives Matter, and so I think that all goes without saying. But with the COVID stuff, as Canada's starting to slowly reopen as the United States is being forced to reopen despite their massive death toll. Even here, where we like to fancy ourselves as Canadians so much smarter than our, uh, than our southern brothers and sisters, you look what happened in Toronto as soon as they opened a park. You know, hundreds if not thousands of people show up and sit shoulder to shoulder with each other and completely ignore the warnings that have been given. So I thought for the month of June, I would do a little theme. I'm like, I'm going to be calling They Were Warned. So I'm going to be looking at films that are all about characters either desperately trying to ignore a problem that is so huge you can't, you know, logically ignore it, or characters that are flagrantly ignoring warnings. Uh, from another character, and they thus get themselves into some kind of a sticky wicket. So I have a list of films. I'm not exactly sure what's going to be the first uh, episode there, but I do have a list. I'm looking at it right now. It's on my whiteboard. Uh, so that's what's that's what June is going to be. So it'll be a good fun mix of horror and sci-fi and everything that you've come to know and love. No superheroes. I don't believe. I think it'll I think I'm superheroed out for the month. But I want to thank you guys very much for joining me for sticking with me all through this uh this superhero uh this superhero tour, I should say. I got nothing. I have to say you might have noticed that I might I sound a little off. I don't have my normal sense of exuberance. But I, I am very tired and I have to pee. So that that's going on there too. There's there's a lot going on, but hopefully once I get through a week or two of work, I'll, I'll have my, uh, my stank back up to speed. And I'll sound like the wonderful radio, uh, the radio guy you come to know and love. Oh, everything's terrible. I'm just going to wrap all this up. So until next time, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Please like, subscribe, share, tell a friend. You know, the, if, you, if you like an episode throw it up on your Facebook, you know, that would be absolutely wonderful. You know, help me, help me get the word out there and more people can enjoy listening to me completely disintegrate, uh, verbally and emotionally in the last three to five minutes of every episode. Like I, I think that's worth the purchase price alone, really. So thank you once again, until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken. <laughs>